0: Hi everyone! Welcome back to another episode of the George Fu Show. I'm your host Song. With me is our, our co-host George. How's your day been today, George?
1: Been good, been good. I'm really excited to do an evening podcast, so really glad that we're doing this one. So, um, is it the first time we're doing it in the evening?
0: I think so. Usually we do it kind of in the afternoon, right? Like, uh, but today I was really busy. There's a lot of football going on too, so uh, evening was a little bit better.
1: I actually, when I went on a day trip yesterday, just came back, and it's the weekend, so. I definitely feel really good to do it, so let's see if the energy level is different from last week, which was a good episode. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I know let's get started right away. We can get started with something that was similar to last week, the layoffs that are continuously happening again, I think Amazon and Salesforce both like laid off a lot of people, but also like now it's like kind of shifting into the finance space to so Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley have announced they're gonna be laying off people too, and like their corporate jobs like corporate finance jobs and like investment banking, sales and trading. So what are your thoughts on that, George?
1: I think it's finally coming. And we've been talking about for a long, long time. And I think if you watch like ABC News, CBS News or something like in the US, you'll find that people are actually asking the same questions. Why is only tech having those layoffs? And why are the layoffs only impacting the tech industry workers and not the others? I think there are really two segments to it. And I think like, first of all, is because the tech industry is the most overhired industry in the past five years combined like the volume, how they're adding new workers like Google, Meta, it's just been unseen before. I think they're hiring at a time. I think for Google, 25% more people in 2022 compared to 2021. That for a company with hundreds of thousands of workers is simply not sustainable. So I think, honestly, so I'm like, do you think that's why we're seeing tech layoffs first? Because that's the most overhyped, most overvalued industry. And do you think now Goldman Sachs is laying off, it's actually related to how the economy is tumbling down it's so much like the 2007, 2008, where, you know, there's some dominoes that falls first and then the economy gets impacted after. Do you feel like we're at that sector?
0: No, I think that's exactly it. I think what's kind of happened in the last couple of years has been a lot of people have wanted to classify their company in tech as well. Because the tech multiple just meant that you could kind of like value your company higher than like if you were to like be like a manufacturing company. Then like your like multiple itself or for like evaluation was a little bit lower. So because every company kind of want to identify themselves as tech, we saw the entire market become like very tech focused. Mm-hmm. Like if Apple or Microsoft, like these big companies kind of like started going down, the entire S&P 500 felt the effects of that, right? So I think like, yeah, like uh because of that, during like the big boom in 2020 and 2021, what we saw was like everyone just like put all their money in these like big tech companies, really bullish on them all. And then once like, you know, like it's, everything started panting, like the interest started increasing, yeah. In tech guy first because tech was like the biggest maker offer market and now like like for example Goldman Sachs is gonna be the like some of their biggest deal flow would be in tech companies so like you don't have deal flow within like tech then like you don't really have use for your employees right so I think we're gonna start seeing that trickle down effect now and it's gonna be kind of a scary time for a lot of people I think
1: so you think Goldman is because of the tech sector and what's mm-hmm. gonna be next you think so I'm like what's gonna happening after Goldman is it more financial firms going to be laying off Or do you think other sectors like food, retail, those other traditional industries will start to get impacted, like the blue-collar jobs? Or do you think so far it's still going to be the white-collar jobs for a while?
0: I think it's going to be the white-collar jobs, specifically on the service side of things, like professional services. So that would be something like, yeah, like, same way investment banking, sales and trading. I think also, like, consulting and, like, other jobs in those kind of sectors where you're offering your advice to companies during the good times. Like, during the good times, people want advice on everything. Like, oh, can we do this? Can we do that? Even the bad times you just kind of want to survive, right? So, you're not going to be paying that extra premium just to get like advice on like strategy. Like, you're not going to be hiring a McKinsey to say, Hey, um, what's our outlook going to be like for the next year? If you need somebody to hire, you're going to hire somebody to be like, How can I survive for the next year? So, I think like we're going to see like layoffs on that side too, or at the very least, we're already starting to see the hiring freeze happen. So, I think that's mm-hmm. going to be a big effect. And then, in terms of like industries itself, I would say that. We're going to see that consumers, like, I think will be hit badly just because of the fact that we're seeing these rising costs everywhere. And the costs have to be given to somebody, like they have to be like, and at the end of the day, it's going to go to like the consumer, like the end consumers are the one. going to have to pay for all these like increased costs, right? So the consumer like, demand for products and going to start to I mean, decrease. What about you, George?
1: Yeah, I think the blue color jobs will be impacted. If you look at Amazon like on a personal basis, obviously many people use Amazon over the holiday season. And I think like I was trying to return something to Amazon and usually uh, when you return something, they give you a refund right away. Right. Once they receive the item, UPS receives the item. But now I've been waiting for more than two, three weeks for simply like a refund for like a return item. Right. And they're like, okay, it might take four more weeks to process. So what does it mean? It means that Amazon obviously realized that their finances are being hindered. Right. They can't be doing the same things they were doing before. So. I am bearish on Amazon, I guess, because of that. And Amazon kind of like, if you think about what Amazon represents, there are many merchants on Amazon. If Amazon itself is not making money, it means the merchants on Amazon are not making money. And does that mean consumers are pushing back a little bit? I think that's also like a fair question. But overall, I think if you look at the Black Friday stats, I think it was in November 2022, I think it showed that consumer behaviors were staying the same. So that's kind of like where I'm surprised upon mm-hmm. you know, in terms of like why they're still spending. So how I mean, is it more credits? You think people are just spending a lot on credits? And they're still optimistic about the economy or do you think it's just like uh, it hasn't hit that sector yet, consumer spending?
0: I think it's more just to do with the fact that once you kind of get to a lifestyle, you kind of like keep yourself in that lifestyle. You don't really downgrade your lifestyle. So like in 2020, 2021, all the free money that was out there, people started living very lavishly, right? Like uh, some people even got like two jobs, all this like crazy stuff happened during this one like time. And so because of that, like now in 2022, like hey, even though the economy is contracting, even though like yeah, interest rates are increasing and the cost of capital itself to hold money is like becoming increasingly high, people are still willing to just spend it because they just got so used to in the past two years. And it's really sticky when it comes to habits like that. So I think it's not going to hit consumers until it actually becomes like, oh, you're living, you know, like check to check and things like that. And I think that once that starts trickling down is when it's going to really start impacting like a lot of consumers.
1: But we are seeing mortgage rates increasing steadily over the past couple months. The mortgage bills are increasing. We're seeing the food and drinks and grocery bills are increasing due to inflation. And kind of my question is like, you know, the cost of everything is going up and obviously consumers are being aware of that. So why are consumer behaviors in general are still sticking to the past two years? Do You think so, it's like people are just like, okay, I don't really care about the long-term effects of the inflation and everything else. I'm just gonna live my life the same as the last and previous in 2020. What do you think it is?
0: When it it comes to consumer behavior during good times, fiscal responsibility at an individual level kind of like goes out the window, right? Just because if you like spend recklessly, you just end up like being able to recoup that money back in like something somewhere, right? Because like there's so much money going on everywhere. But now, like even though that money is not coming in as often or as frequent, people just are not like getting like realizing that, like that all their fiscal responsibilities that. Like no one's opening their bank accounts off and checking, Hey, what is this actually looking like? And I think that's the big problem. And like, I completely agree with that these mortgage rates are increasing. This is going to be like step one when it comes to seeing what happens to consumers, like over the next year and two years, because these interest rates are here to stay. Like Jerome Powell already said it, like we're not going to decrease these interest rates. So it's going to be interesting to see. And then in terms of mortgage rates too, like that kind of brings back the next topic we want to talk about as well, right? Like about. Blackstone's B-REIT and like everything that happened with the free crisis. What are your thoughts on that, George? And maybe give a quick recap of what happened.
1: Yeah, I'll give a quick uh, recap on what happened. So Blackstone is a company that is essentially doing private equity. It's a private equity company that's public. And they have a real estate investment trust called <laughs> B-REITs that essentially is a public trust. Like So um, you and I can put our money into the B-REITs. And b Reads primarily buys commercial real estate properties and rent it out, right? So... That's basically what it is. And I think in December, it had around $8 billion of redemptions from its fund. And redemption just means that investors are pulling money from the fund. Really quickly, that Blackstone, which is one of the largest private equity companies in the world, could not sustain that kind of withdrawal, right? Because for a real estate company, I'm sure you know, so I'm like, most of the capital is probably deployed into really illiquid real estate assets. So what happened is that a $125 billion fund had $8 billion taken off. Of their balance sheet so they have to actually suspend redemption so meaning that if we want to pull money out from blackstone's reits we cannot do that so that happened in december and five days ago uh, which is like you know the first week of january there is news coming out that the university of california has just backed blackstone reads in an all-cash deal so let me just give everyone an update so with university of california investments uc investments will invest four billion dollars into Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust, right? Under the terms of the deal, UC Investments will acquire $4 billion of the shares on January 1st of this year. In addition, Blackstone itself will also contribute $1 billion of its current holdings to B-REITs. And then, this is an really interesting part happens, Blackstone commits to be paying back UC Investments, a guaranteed 11.25% minimum annualized net returns for the next six years. So it looks like, it looks like a bailout to me, <laughs> okay. although it's not really a bailout, but it looks like a bailout to me. And it's definitely, um, the news that, you know, people are looking at SBF, people are looking at, you know, FTX and all the sketchy stuff happening in crypto. And I'm sure some people are asking, okay, is this something that's happening in the real world? It's just like a different consequences for different players. So, so i what's your take over the Blackstone B reads?
0: Yeah. No, I think it's really just shocking in general because. Between like Blackstone, I think the Carlyle Group and KKR, those are like the three biggest private equity firms in the world, essentially, right? And like they're very respected, highly coveted. So like usually, it's, and something as sticky as like real estate, it never falters as much. You'd assume that oh like you know Blackstone did like all the due diligence right for like something like their read. So it's just really like concerning that like a lot of investors are trying to get their capital out and just put it into something on their own, and that kind of like takes you to like the next level, of like these kind of liquidity prices. If it happens to Blackstone, it's going to start happening to everyone else too, right? Like somebody's respected Blackstone, if they're getting like called out by investors, everyone else is going to. And we're seeing like the entire market starting to crash. So this liquidity crisis, I think, is a big concern just because it's essentially a bank run, right? Like if everybody wants their money out, the entire thing itself will crash and nobody will kind of get their money. So that's going to be a big issue to watch out for, I think, and going for like the next uh, year in general.
1: And do you think some I mean, this is more like a commercial real estate problem? Like you said, do you think it's more like a commercial real estate problem than a blackstone problem? Because blackstone is obviously very public. It's a public reach. Mm-hmm. Anyone can invest in it. So do you think that's why?
0: I definitely agree. I think that's like kind of like there's become a huge culture shift in the fact that like work from home is becoming a lot more prominent. So commercial real estate itself is like losing valuation. Like I think if you look at the San Francisco real estate market. Like just the past couple of years, we one of the best, like the booms we've seen, right? Like that's the most covered place to get a property. And so now we're seeing like that real estate, like commercial real estate, they're really starting to crash. And so that I think is like definitely part of the issue too, just because we've seen a combination of all oh, mortgage rates going up, you're paying more just to keep that property. On top of that, like the valuation for that property, essentially, even though it hasn't lost many money because you never sold back in 2021, the value of it was a lot higher. And before COVID happened in 2019. The growth rates for were a lot more profitable because the culture was that, oh, these commercial properties are the ones that are never going to go away. Residential properties might lose value, but commercial properties, everyone's going to go to work. So that culture shift is going to definitely be a big impact. And it's going to be really concerning to see what a lot of this real estate does in the next couple of years as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, looking at commercial real estate, um, WeWork, right, which is like a company that's really popular. I think they're introducing the on-demand option as well, I think, in the past couple months. So the WeWork on-demand essentially meaning that you don't have to be a WeWork tenant to use WeWork offices. You can book meeting rooms, you can book like a day use, or you can put like an all-access deal, which essentially mm-hmm. like it's like a $400 to $500 a month. You can use any WeWork offices and use the hot desk for a day, for a month, right? So you can use any offices, you have one key card. But before, if you put that into 2020, or before the pandemic, like no one would think that's like something possible or logical to do. And obviously, I think WeWork is losing money, but they're doing anyways. I think we start sensing the shift in the commercial real estate, you know, things, right? So so um, my question is, I do think commercial real estate is really falling apart because of the remote work, like policies, and is there any other reasons that might be, have things to do with that?
0: I think in general, it is just like that culture shift. For example, like now in Toronto, like I know almost everybody only comes to the office two times a week. That's kind of become the new hybrid model per se. And so if the model like that, that means that sixty percent of the time employees are working from home, theoretically the use of your property dropped by sixty percent. So the value of it has to drop at some point too, right? Maybe not by sixty percent, maybe only by fifteen or twenty percent. But there has to be a drop there because the use of it has become a lower use case. And I don't think there's like much other headwinds besides, yeah, again, like the mortgage rates and stuff like that too have been like uh impact essentially by, I think the biggest thing for why it's commercial in specific has to be people don't want to work in the office. You know, people just want to wake up five minutes before work starts and just log on and do their work. It's a lot easier for them to pick up their kids, you know, spending time with their family during breaks, things like that. Uh, and I think we'll see like essentially like, there has to be some kind of like a uh, new format for commercial let's, let's see yeah. where it goes in the next couple of years.
1: And so from like people, I guess, like friends or like coworkers around you. Like, are you seeing that trend, like materializing around you as well in the past, like um, maybe a couple months or the past year, are more people going to prefer to stay at home, even for like financial jobs or tech jobs? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think in terms of people that have like families and kids, I think they 110% like just absolutely love the idea of like working from home because Anytime at 3 o'clock now, you can go to a school, pick up your kid, and your kid can be at home from 3 to 5. You don't have to be worried about them. You don't have to get somebody to go pick them up. All this kind of stuff, like those like, small logistic things, they used to be a nightmare when you work in the office. So for people like a, like a, like a higher age as for their family, I think it's one of the best things. In terms of, like kids' our age, stuff like that, even me personally... Like, I don't really like going to the office as much anymore either. Like, I kind of like waking up, you know, going to the gym, like, right beside me and, like, you know, take my dog for a walk and then just logging on to work here. You know, like, the commute for me is almost an hour. I think saving that time itself of, like, commuting has also made, like, a lot of people, like, yeah, maybe we don't need to go to the office. And I get just much work done at home too, right? Uh, What about you, George?
1: I actually prefer working from home when I'm trying to do my best work, and even for like some internal team meetings, as long as, long as it's not like something super super creative that needs to be done in person, I prefer to do it at home. Um, mm-hmm. I do travel now and now and then. I do go out to grab lunch and dinner with people, and I do travel back to the Waterloo office you know, once in a while. But other than that, I don't think I'm really like a go to the office person type person. I am a WeWork on-demand member. That's why I was talking about the WeWork on-demand thing. It is pretty cool, honestly, if you want to go work for a day somewhere else, you can just like, use the subscription. not the subscription. You can, you can book the on-demand, which is like, I think, 40 bucks a day. You can do that. It's more expensive than Starbucks, but I feel like it's better than Starbucks. That's kind of where I'm preferring, where I think my work schedule is going to be. It's all about productivity, right? Like As long as you're doing productive work, I feel like it's it's an okay issue. As we discussed mm-hmm. in the previous episode, as long as we're putting people accountable, into things. If you're an individual contributor, then you have to be, you know, make sure you're doing things that are accountable to keep on doing productive remote work. If you're an employer, then obviously you want everyone to be accountable. And I think people soon realize that there is a lot of more ways to do than just having people back to the office. I think having people back to the office is not really bringing productivity up, if you know what I mean. Right? Yeah, there are many wow. teams that are working remotely and are doing just fine.
0: Yeah, and honestly, sometimes productivity kind of, like, uh, loses track when you go to the office because you can have coffee chats with your, like, co uh, coworkers, You can have, like, those, like, side 10, 15-minute conversations about, like, oh, did you watch the game yesterday? Oh, like, um, what are your plans for the weekend? Those kind of things. Versus, like, you know, when, like, kind of you work from home, you're working, essentially, right? So, yeah, I think that definitely um is, like, a new culture shift. And we're seeing, like, the trickle-down effects to, like, other industries that were kind of very sticky and inelastic before... The pandemic
1: yeah and we see 2008 mm-hmm. commercial real estate has been hit extremely hard alongside with residential ones right this time mm-hmm. i think someone we're seeing commercial being hit extremely hard what's the next couple of years going to be like for, for commercial real estate
0: yeah i think there's a big difference between how 08 was versus uh 2022 i guess technically is is the fact that 08 kind of started on the residential side right because it was Essentially a bunch of banks kept putting in mortgage backed securities into more and more bundles. And essentially they thought if they have a bunch of mortgages, then like, you know, it would be completely fine. Like the economy would be okay because you're diversifying the risk. What ended up happening was the people that are giving out the mortgages, they did zero background checks, right? So mm-hmm. that was kinda of, and like um people like me and you, like we could have bought a house and oh wait, like one or two houses, things like that. And so that kinda of trickled down and so when the residentials uh fell. Then the commercial fell back in a Now I think what's happening is only like really the commercial side is falling in terms of, uh, to a point where it's concerning like the residential, we'll really like the value of it, it's just become more of like a buyer's market instead of a seller's market. That's kind of where it's really at. The commercial thing, we're seeing like actual macro trends in terms of like a downwards pressure for the overall industry. Like it doesn't matter even if you the best quality property, we're seeing like pressures like building up and in terms of like the next couple of years, Just because there's a culture shift now, I don't really know how much uh, use you're going to have as much for the office. Like, for example, if you're starting a business now, I don't think an office is something you're thinking about before, like in 2016 or something. That was probably one of your first thoughts. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to need an office, right? Mm -hmm.
1: And just so we're in the real estate topic, should we do some predictions for the residential real estate market as well or just like for individual homeowners? Listening into to the podcast, I think many people hear 08 and they're, they're really scared about, you know, their homes being taken away. Um, there's like a really high mortgage rate that's mm-hmm. really going to throw people's life off course. So so like, I guess that's what people's concerns are. And seeing how things are panning out for 22, 23, where are we in this like residential real estate cycle? And what do you think will happen next?
0: Yeah, I think that really depends on, like, yeah, you mentioned like the really high variable rate that you have, right? Like, um. People that kind of got locked in at a fixed rate, like, uh, last year, or the year before got off really lucky. I think, like, um, that's going to be really good for them. Maybe not lucky, maybe scale to maybe they kind of like, oh, or foresaw this happening. But in general, like, if you got that fixed rate, I think, uh, essentially as long as you're not looking to sell your home right away and like, you don't need to become liquid, I think you could kind of ride this out and not, not much will happen. And for people that got like, you know, the variable rates and like it's increasing right now, we're seeing that. At the very least, it's going to stay at this level. It's not going to drop anytime soon. What's going to happen is it's just a big shock in the market at once, right? So like we're going to see a lot of defaults, but I think like back in, I think 06 and like before that, like our shit was around this too. So like as a people, we've been able to survive interest rates this high. I just think it's become a big shock in the system. So I think for the next year, year and a half, maybe it'll be like very bad. But after that, I don't think those default rates are going to be as high as they are kind of being projected right now. What about you, George? What's your projections?
1: I think it's going to stay on course. As you said, I think the mortgage is going to stay on course. I think people need to be more flexible about what they want to do with their mortgage prices, because obviously it is going up and it's not on the pace of going down from soon. So like, you know, like the small front, small things about saving energy costs from bigger things like, for example, renting a room or a basement to other people I think it's something worth considering for you know people who are listening in I obviously think the residential real estate market is the next one domino to fall in terms of the public investments if anyone's been reading the news you can see that a lot of large corporations in 2020 and 2021 like Blackstone actually um, and Invitation Homes they are purchasing a lot of homes uh, in America and I'm sure here in Canada as well and where are those homes and if you see the open door earnings results and if you see those real estate companies are already showing cracks, you can see that like those companies will eventually bring down the valuations of your homes, and I think that's coming next in terms of the real estate bubble unravel. So I feel like that's gonna happen.
0: Um, so, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think one thing about was really key was yeah, like the renters market. I think is gonna have see a big boom in the span that um, I think the prices for renting is just gonna increase more and more. Because the one unfortunate thing about real estate is that it's literally real land, right? Like, there's only a finite amount of places you can live in. Everyone needs a place to live. So, if now, like, you can't get approved for a mortgage anymore, the interest rates are too high, what are you going to do besides just renting a property, right? And if there's going to be more and more people that need to rent, what's like well, as the homeowner, that's someone that wants to rent out their property, what are you going to do? Like, the only thing you can do then is, like, you get to charge more. So, I think, overall, we're going to see a really... Like peak in terms of like rental prices and things like that over the span of the next couple of years as well. Just because, yeah, like uh, people are not going to be able to afford to buy the house itself that they want to live in, so they're going to have to rent it out.
1: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, and just so we're on the financial market and real estate news, let's turn a little bit to hedge fund news. Twenty twenty two has largely been a good month for most hedge mm-hmm. funds, and I think this can be seen especially with the hedge fund Citadel, that has made about. Twenty-eight billion dollars in revenue for 2022 for a fifty-two or something billion-dollar fund. So it's, a, it's more than fifty percent return. Um, and I think that there are many other hedge funds that are also posting really good results. So, so I'm like, based off like let's say um, hedge funds and real estate, like why is there such a sharp contrast? I know still there's one company, but um, from my conversations for hedge funds, most hedge funds are up on the year, whereas the S and P is down, I believe thirteen to fifteen percent. So what's your read about like why hedge funds perform so well and real estate not?
0: I think one of the big reasons why like kind of the way hedge funds is built like into the name is hedge, right? So essentially what the goal of a hedge fund is, it's not to really maximize your earnings. It's really more to um, stabilize your earnings during good and bad times, right? So hedge funds will take both long positions and short positions at the same time. Obviously, like different industries, different things based on like macro events, what their analysts do and everything like that. But Overall, what they're aiming to do isn't just to like uh, make money. It's more to make sure during the bad times, it's not as bad. And so like what we're seeing is because the bad times got hit so drastically, all the companies that kind of had like good quality short positions already in place. And I kind of foresaw this. They did really, really well because the one good thing about, well, I guess not good thing is doing a short position becomes very profitable very fast because when people start selling, panic selling happens all the time it's not really the same on like the buy side right like when people buy like, there's it's a valuation based metric right like you don't want your market cap to go above what its value is versus mm-hmm. people who are willing to like just keep selling just because they want the money too right like we're seeing people like shifting their assets itself from equities into in debt and then maybe even gold right so i think that's one of the biggest things is just what about you george what's your takeaway yeah
1: i guess my question is like do you think the Border market is down because most people are holding for the long term or they're holding assets, whereas hedge funds are more active in terms of their activities. Not saying like, obviously, day trading or swing trading is like profitable most of the time. It's not. But do you think it's because they're transacting more frequently and they're more heading for the upsides and they're not long term investors? That's why they're kind of prevailing this year. For hedge funds?
0: I don't know if I would say it exactly that way, because you kind of mentioned that, Like I mean, you know, Warren Buff had that famous bet, right, with like 10 hedge funds that, hey. If you can beat the market over a span of like for five or 10 years, I'll put a million dollars in your favorite charity. And I think almost none of those hedge funds won, right? And so I don't think even a hedge fund is usually going to be good at terms of beating up the market. But I think when times like um, these, like a big macro shift, it becomes a lot easier when you have a lot more knowledge of the market, right? Like hedge funds are probably going to be much better understanding, hey, right? when like interest rates like uh, decrease, What's happening historically? When interest rates are going to be rising, like what's happened right now, what is going to happen, right? Like, um, and there was whispers for a long time. It's not like people didn't kind of see this coming. Like, it was kind of obvious that interest rates were going to increase. I think everyone kind of like already heard the whispers before it happened. So, for hedge fund, it's a lot easier because these people understand everything like at a macro level, and they could have shifted all their assets because that is their whole goal, right? Is to doing like every type of like economy, they want to be able to make money. Versus yeah. most of us like retail investors, they're not going to be as good on the short side of things. Like being long on a company is a little bit easier in terms of like the research and stuff. But when you're shorting a company, it's a lot more to it, right?
1: Yeah. And I think if you look back like to the past two years, always come back to it. But if you look back in the past two years, everyone's making money. And people are like, mm. okay, screw this company, screw this hedge fund. Or you know, like even Warren Buffett's the thing of the past, which we heard. I think every time someone say that you should keep a track of it and you can say like uh, it's like a sign of the bubble. It's like it's one of the top things to it. So like mm-hmm. in 2021, I can clearly remember everyone's like, oh, Warren Buffett's like the thing of the past. Like, I can just make money. I can just close my eyes, buy a few stocks and kind of shoot up 20 percent. So that's where the retail trading has been happening. Right. So I just feel like maybe this is like a sentiment to that. Like, I think hedge funds were not making money when retailers are making money. That's because I think easy money is hard to make. Right. And I think right now I think we're seeing the reversal of that. And maybe just because the scenario we're we're in, a down market, it's actually a good time for hedge funds to make money because they're both long and short. So I think I agree with you, Soham, on that. So I think it's very interesting to happen what's happening in our financial system, obviously. So yeah, let's go to our next topic.
0: Yeah, no, no I think next topic is kinda of gonna be one of the biggest macro ones for maybe not just twenty twenty three, but like just uh for the next couple of years and onwards is the fact that China and Saudi Arabia are kind of like discussing a petrol currency to trade their oil in. And maybe I'll give our listeners like a little bit of background about what that is and like why that's kind of a big deal. Essentially what's happening is China is talking with Saudi Arabia in the hopes that Saudi Arabia, which is the biggest oil exporter in the world, starts selling their oil in the petrol wand. Petrol is like this currency that China wants to make. That they're using as like future contracts backed by gold itself, which is a big important factor as well in this and using that currency to be the thing that trades well. And historically for the past, I think almost century, we've been trading oil and exclusively US dollar and becoming like the, the currency in which you trade globally becomes very important for the sole reason that that country becomes the new reserve currency, quote unquote. And being that reserve currency is really important because that's kind of the currency that holds liquidity for everybody. If every country is going to be trading within, you, with your currency, your country is geopolitical influence over the world also becomes very big. So George, let me take a view. What are your thoughts about all of this?
1: I think if anyone has no Ray Dalio, who's the founder of Bridgewater Associates, he has, he has mm-hmm. wrote a book that's, it's essentially called the changing world order, which basically looks back to the past thousands of years and, you know, the Roman empire, the British empire and the American empire which we're in right now, and every time an empire fails, it's kind of starts with the dominant positions in the economics. I think Mm. in this case, it is showing that a sign of the US dominance, it's fading away. And I feel like if Chinese Yuan becomes the currency that people use to buy oil, then that might be a sign, and I'm sure a lot of people don't wanna hear about it, but that might be a sign that, you know, the Chinese economy might show the pace of eventually overtaking US in in the coming decades. And we've had this conversation for a long time, I think most of the time people were like, okay, this is not going to happen. But if this indeed happens, and the fact that we're covering this, the fact that like this is going to happen, Saudi Arabia might take Chinese yuan as a reserve currency. That is basically showing that China dominance is going to be keep coming up on, on the track, right? I think Saudi Arabia and the current U.S. administration, it's not really getting along that well. I think Donald Trump had a relationship with Saudi Arabia back then, but I think right now they're having a lot of issues with OPEC. Um, and I think they're just like both sides are not budging. So that might have impacted something with Saudi Arabia who has a great relationship with China and also with Russia.
0: Yeah. And I think what you said right there is probably the most important takeaway from this is we're kind of seeing the deathly hallows get together, right? Like Russia, China, and Saudi Arabia, the three of them like individually probably wouldn't be the best of friends. Like they have a lot of cultural differences and like, you know just like country-like differences. But we're seeing like um the fact that USA, like the enemy of mining, is my friend, right? So USA has kind of become like this common enemy amongst all three. Like you know, USA is taking like a big stance of like becoming like the black plague to these three countries, and we're seeing that like the three of them are like shifting together and like trying to do things like not only China is also India, but China and India started like trading in with Russia in the ruble back in 2022, right? Just to offer liquidity to the currency, like to the Russian currency, because like you mentioned, like USA was trying to trample their like empire by you know like destroying the economy first so we're seeing like all these like kind of almost allies get together and it's going to be really interesting to see what the biggest oil exporter the trending big or oh, second biggest economy with the biggest people in china and then like russia in terms of just the overall like geopolitical influence has been there for the past century since before when it was ussr all the way till now we're going to see what the three of them like there's becoming like this alliance between the three of them, which is going to be really important, I think, in the next decade for sure.
1: Yeah, and just like you know, I believe U.S. is an ally for Saudi Arabia, or the other way around. I think Saudi Arabia is an ally of the U.S. strategically, and Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia helps the U.S. a lot um, in terms of intelligence sharing and also helping with the like the whole region, right? So I feel like they're not enemies per se, but I do think that they're being alienated right now by the current U.S. Um, administration. And mm-hmm. it's not going the way anyone really thinks it should be going, hopes it should be going. It's going on the wrong, wrong side for the U S at least. So I feel like it's, um, it's a very tricky thing to witness. And I feel like my prediction is that they will allow Yuan to be used to process those payments eventually. Probably mm-hmm. like, it could be as soon as this year, but I don't really see. It. I think maybe next year or the year after, but it will happen. And I think it's inevitable. And I think yeah. that would just be something that's a big loss for the West and the U
0: S. I definitely agree. Like, as of right now, I think, like, Saudi and USA are, like, allies. But I think the more bigger thing is, um, I think a couple of years ago when the Khashoggi murder happened, in Saudi Arabia did. And, like, you know, USA had to kind of push that, like, uh, to the side just for more, like, geopolitical reasons. We're seeing that now, like, USA is starting to push Saudi Arabia away. When, when the Russian-Ukraine war first happened, like, you know, Biden went all the way to Saudi Arabia, asked, um, asked the Prince of um, to make, uh, produce more oil. He said no, like, we're seeing Saudi Arabia is not listening, like let's say uh to the US as much as it would have like in the past. So it's gonna be interesting just to see how all of this unfolds. And I think it's gonna be very important because again, like the part I also want to bring up is the gold-backed part in this. So because they're tra- uh, they're signing like futures and they're backing by gold, what that also incentivizes Saudi Arabia is in the fact that like the one itself goes down in the currency. What happens is then China will be paying Saudi Arabia in gold. And I don't know how much our listeners have kind of like seen this in the past uh, couple of years. What's happened is between China and Russia, they have bought a lot of gold. And last year, like Russia sold a lot of that to China. So we're seeing like uh, China build up this huge stockpile of gold as well. So it's going to be really interesting to see considering usually in like a down market in recession as well. The asset that gets the most uh, high in valuation is gold because people want to shift their money from you know, like equities into something more tangible and hard, like gold. So it's going to be a very interesting, I think, pursuance over the next uh, decade and onwards.
1: Yeah. And do you think, like, just for prediction, do you think U.S. will lose more control over Asia and the Middle Eastern region, which, like, surrounding Saudi Arabia is called the CCC region? So do you think that region and Asia will be like uh, the U.S. influence will fade there over time as well?
0: Yeah. I think USA U.S. is not doing itself any favors. I think they're pushing away all of the allies. I remember, um, USA was kind of trying to publicly shame India for dealing with Russia as well, and not take any kind of politics into this. Just the fact is that India is the second biggest uh, like um, country in terms of number of people. I think it's a fourth or fifth biggest economy in the world, and it also is the largest democracy like outside of like USA, right? So the fact that USA is still like trying to hold their influence by like trying to publicly shame, they're taking away a lot of their allies on that Asia side of things. So point where they're pushing them right into their enemy's hands and it looks like we'll see what happens with this what are you what's your prediction do you think usa will be losing influence
1: i think militarily i think they're still on the right track i think they're still building military bases in japan korea south korea and all those different countries and also in the middle east as well so i feel like the military influence will still be there but as we see from the Ukraine russia war the military dominance is no longer the currency for the future, at least for like the era that we live in, you know, economic Mm -hmm. influence, diplomatic influence, and also just like soft influence, right? It's more important or ideology influence is more important in our era. And I feel like those are fading away as well as we are just talking about. And I think that it's probably just for the natural course, right? It is going Mm -hmm. to happen. And I think those regions like India, China, Japan, and all those other different countries, especially with, uh, I know, I forgot what's the Asia conference call. I think it's called CPAC or OPEC. Mm-hmm. I think it's called CPAC. But essentially, I think that's like a beginning for the Asian countries forming their own alliances, right? So seeing more of that happen, I think I pretty that's going to be the trend. And also just cultural differences. Like the uh, US is so far away from all those different countries. Yeah. It's harder to really put a cap on what to say for them. Mm-hmm. I think we're starting to see a crack.
0: I think you hit on something really important. That The fact is that their military, in terms of like their dominance, is there, inter- it's the biggest military. But what will end up happening is also you see, um, like if you take game theory, there's mutually assured destruction on either side. Like nuclear weapons is kind of an end game. Like uh, it doesn't matter if it's USA has like a hundred nuclear weapons and let's say Russia only has 10 nuclear weapons. At the end of the day, like one on each side is kind of like game over. So even with that military being as strong as it is, you have this point where, like uh, all these other countries, have a mutually assured destruction to the point where the military kind of gets out of the equation, and I think that's going to play a factor as well into this.
1: I agree. Yeah, and I think China will, will be a one of the biggest influencers in that region, if not anyone else. And I think we will see that really pan out. The post-COVID, I think China just reopened itself to the world and removed all COVID restrictions for international travelers traveling to China. I think that's a huge thing. I think they're trying to make the, they the right decision. They're opening up itself for the world, which means that I think they're opening itself for the world trade as well. So I think that, I think the more of the things that we discussed over the past two years, three years has been everyone's been focused on their own problem, right? In terms of like the COVID, the vaccine, everything else. Now I think we're going to see the competition starts again, which uh, will be, you know, exciting in, in some ways in terms of like just monitoring it and seeing how it goes. So am really yeah. excited for that.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting just to see Um, like the second biggest place that trade was done outside of the USA was China, right? So it's going to be not finally opening up again for trade. We're going to see how much more like people are flooding into China now because like, since then, like there's become a lot more like political pressures from like every side of it for this. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And maybe from there, we can kind of like pick to our last segment was uh stocks like what are you bullish on? What are you bearish on, George?
1: One of my most bullish, on? I think. I think I'm really bullish on oil, uh, and I think mm-hmm. it might be an obvious answer. But I, I will say that even if the Russian korean war ends this year, I will still be bullish on oil, oil and gas for the year of 2023. I think that is the strong buy. What is bearish? I will say fintech companies are the most bearish ones I had. But if you're trying to invest in any of that, I think mean, or shorting of that it's probably too late. Looking into 2023, I will say I would think retail will be a loser. I think that's like something that's not being hit yet. But it's going to be very soon. I think anything tied, in, tied up to consumer credits, consumer banking, anything regarding consumer and money, I think those are going to be impacted. Even like, you know, with restaurants like McDonald's or KFC, they're going to be impacted as well. Um not putting any advice for shorting, obviously, it's just personal opinion, but that's really what I'm seeing and all. And I think for tech, we could make a case that I firmly believe that tech has not bottomed and not anything close. I think we will see the bottoming maybe in Q2 and Q3 of this year, although the timing could still shift, but I, I just feel like we have not bottomed in terms of tech stocks and overall in the S&P. I, I don't think we have bottomed yet, and now mm-hmm. is probably not the best time
0: to be buying stocks or being in you know, a long term. Okay, what about what about bullish? What are you bullish on, bullish?
1: Yeah, like I said, I think uh, oil and gas. I think it's really I'm really bullish about that. I think mm-hmm. EV definitely is a strong like testament, but I think like right now, I think oil and gas stocks are the best stocks mm-hmm. right now.
0: That makes sense. I guess like for me, I'll kind of echo, uh, what you said in terms of especially like what you're bearish on being that, yeah, like everything that was high growth in that fintech space is really going to be taking a hit because you're seeing so much pressures from every angle just to really like limit that growth, right? You see companies like, uh, Shopify, uh, Lightspeed that were like really in that e-commerce space. Those like we've already seen how badly they're hit and I don't think it's over. Like, um, I think we've seen the worst of it, but I just don't think it's over for them either. And then I think yeah. uh, like a surprising pick I'd probably say I'm also a very bearish on would be Apple because we talked about this like uh, what you mentioned about in terms of consumer spending I think is going to be decreasing on that end mm-hmm. and also um, I think like the added pressure like political pressure that Apple is getting in terms of all their like uh, products that they're manufacturing in China they have to find a new place to like manufacture their products because there's becoming like a lot of extra like political like hoops they have to jump through right now for it. So if Apple doesn't like uh, figure out the logistics part, it's going to be kind of like interesting to see what 2023 will be like. And for me, in terms of bearish stuff, I think one thing I'm very bearish on is uh, on like the public transportation space, especially like public transportation manufacturers, like something like the Cindy Motor Corporation, something I'm invested in. It's like a very small micro cap company, but I think that that space is something that's still heavily invested. In. I think governments, especially, um, they're investing a lot in getting good quality public transportation for uh, people. Because we're seeing two shifts. Because people aren't going to work as nearly as much. We're seeing people don't want to have a car as much for that reason. And two, we're also seeing the fact is that cars are becoming too expensive. Like before in 2020, 2021, cars increased in value. Like used cars were worth more than like some of them were worth more than when you bought them. So we're seeing that like that kind of like shift. People are now like gonna be swayed towards that public transportation space too. So I think that's gonna be really interesting. Because that's also something that will always be funded by the government money too. So mm-hmm. it becomes a little bit cheaper on the consumer side of things. And on top of that, also, I think, uh, we already talked about this last time too, uh, with Microsoft I and mean, I think we're both very bullish on what chat GPT can do for the Bing search engine and like onwards for them overall. And like lastly, I know you said you're pretty bearish on Amazon, but I'm on like the bullish side of things just because I kind of like Amazon's portfolio model. You have like their three legged portfolio model with their prime memberships, with their AWS service, and then like their consumer spending, right? With like their actual whatever you buy on Amazon. But I think the big part is that AWS is becoming more and more prominent. Like we're seeing with like new emergence of AI, you're going to need that cloud computing going forward. And I think Amazon also has an extra leeway of going into the fitness space that not a lot of companies have. I know they've been talking with Peloton about possibly acquiring them and things like that.
1: I think so. Like my question about AWS is that wouldn't companies be cutting bills and spending on AWS? And I think it's really hard for companies to move off AWS, but wouldn't they find ways to start trying to cut spending? Like what Netflix did with AWS, I think they're, they're trying many, very, very hard to, you know, uh, reduce their cloud spending. And I yeah. think that might have an impact.
0: No, I agree in the fact that I think a lot of companies have been trying to figure out how to do it without AWS, but that I kind of think showed that they can't do it i don't know if that makes sense but there's a lot of companies out there that they realize that let them just focus on what they can do and they can pay a small premium but just let amazon handle all of that part and i think what we're seeing is that maybe on like those bigger companies like netflix they might be able to figure out a way just because they have so much capital they can deploy into this but startups and stuff like that they're gonna just have to end up paying the premium for aws right and the thing is, as much as people are saying, yeah, like there isn't as much like VC funding and everything like that. St- entrepreneurs don't stop being entrepreneurs during a bear market, right? We're still going to see people that want to mm-hmm. do this come up. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see like uh, like uh, AWS's growth on that side.
1: Yeah. And what about the consumer side? So, like, like I want to mention about Amazon cutting staff, corporate staff and, and arguably, yes, they're cutting the most is like the Alexa units. But that might not be true for the most recent 18,000 job cuts, right? And we're seeing that, you know, it might extend more into the white collar column. But my question is, like, doesn't that signal there's a slower retail demand from the consumers to Amazon? And like I mentioned, like, consumers buy less stuff. The companies on Amazon make less stuff. And the way Amazon makes money off merchants is taking a cut off each transaction, right? For free delivery reasons, for example. So that's how they make money plus the, you know, prime memberships. So wouldn't that have a direct impact on Amazon's business because something they're selling they're not all essentials.
0: I think that as much as um consumer spending is going to be going down, what we've seen is like we just talked about like November 2022, Amazon still just hit all time records. So I just think uh in terms of the new way of spending like online on something like Amazon, like I don't know about you George, sometimes I just go on Amazon when I'm bored and just like just look at products. Maybe I'd want to buy that, maybe not. I it's like, you know, sometimes I'll purposely just spend for stuff. I think that that kind of consumer behavior is something that's kind of like sticky, like we mentioned earlier in this pod. It's really hard to erase that. I think Amazon's done just such a good job. of. I don't think I even, I'm even. i too lazy to go Walmart. I'm too lazy to even check Walmart's website and get shipping from there. I just, if it's not on Amazon, I honestly just kind of be like, okay, maybe I don't really need it. And I think Amazon's done such a good job of that place and getting stuck in that market so well. There isn't really a way for people to just be able to stop spending as much because I think people are willing to just go into credit just because like, oh, this looks really cool. I need this for my desk. Like this new lava lamp has three uh, colors like uh, thing, that people's buy.
1: Yeah. And I think Amazon's earning, it. is it coming soon? I actually don't know, but I would be really curious to see how it's doing in queue for this like big company. I think, I think if Amazon is bearish case, it might, mm-hmm. excuse me. Oh, definitely be, be from the consumer unit than the AWS side. I agree with you. I think companies cutting, cutting spending on AWS wouldn't, it will happen, but not as much impact the bottom line for sure.
0: I think uh, not just Amazon in general, it's going to be really interesting to see the earnings for uh, this quarter because I think we were talking about this right before we started this podcast it was, um, yeah, like a lot of analysts are just projecting that there's going to be a negative earnings this uh, quarter, right? So we'll see what it looks like right now. We'll see, I think this will be the best indicator about where the market's heading is, what happens this quarter.
1: Yeah, I think that's super interesting. I'm really liking your bearish case for Apple. Because my question is like, Apple always have a lot of cash and they always Mm -hmm. pay out dividends, right? Most tech companies don't pay out dividends. Do you think like the amount of cash they have, do you think they'll still have a trouble for 2023? Not, obviously not for survival, but is it really that big of a bear
0: case? I think the fact is that Apple's kind of put itself into like more of like monopolistic kind of ecosystem. We're seeing that uh, people kind of, are not willing to take, like, I think the app store takes 30% of all revenue you get from it. And a lot of people are saying, we don't want this, this is very like uh, antitrust, like antitrust is getting involved in this, right? Like, it's very monopolistic that part. So Apple is fighting off uh, that part. I think last year we saw like a big lawsuit over um Apple's batteries that they used to do for the iPhones, like mm-hmm. that they were deteriorating. And then on top of that, we're all seeing like the AirPods case that's happened like uh, last year. We're seeing a lot of like uh, legal action going against them. And then we're also seeing, like, the political impacts of them, manufacturing everything yeah. in China. And on top of all that, I think Samsung just released a report that they're not expecting as much sales for their phones. And I think it would be, like, uh, foolish to say that, oh, Apple will be fine just because um, their app, like, um I think the iPhones will definitely take a hit. I think in China already, like, last year, they had to really lower the price of the iPhone because people weren't buying it. And I think the iPhone also canceled the iPhone 14 for, like, a little bit. Just because, yeah, that wasn't really a big upgrade. So unless Apple does something innovative, I don't know how 2023 will be a good year for them at all.
1: Yeah. And And the holiday season, dude, this holiday season, I definitely see that if you buy something from Apple, they will give you like an equivalence of gift cards
0: in $200, $200. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen Apple give a discount. Like I remember a couple of years ago, I got my uh, MacBook and there was zero discounts. Trust me on that (laughs) one.
1: Okay. Oh, so yeah, that, I guess that that is a good sign. Um, and I think also think like the Apple financing, right? I think at least in Canada, it's done by a firm, which is stock is down 80, 90 plus percent since its recent highs. So I do question how that is going to be sustainable. And Apple's like Apple car business, which partnership with Goldman Sachs. Apple car is a credit card, which I also am a little bit very shocked. So I can definitely see your points. So on, on, on Apple. I think it's very unique. So mm-hmm. I think it's really, it's a really great prediction. Yeah, I think oil and gas, what I said, so kind of it's really boring, but I think it's it's really what I believe to be bullish and a bearish one. <laughs> There's so many things to be bearish on. Um, just great pick on Apple.
0: Yeah, that's right. And we'll see how 2023 goes. This is a great episode. I think that we'll, we'll come back to it next year and see uh, how right or how wrong we were.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be for sure. And also mm-hmm. for our listeners, if you ever want to reach me or Soham, you can find our contact information social media and ways to reach us in the podcast descriptions. And also again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And we'll be having a few episodes where we interview the best and brightest in business and finance really, really soon, asking them questions about how their businesses are gonna are gonna fare well in twenty twenty three. So keep staying tuned. Thank you so much. Have a happy new year, although the like second week, have a great you know, year ahead. Thank you so much. And thank you so much